0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the Medicaid-extended podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 9th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis,
1: accompanied as ever by... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland.
0: And on this week's episode, we're pleased to welcome Christina Ho, professor of law at Rutgers School of Law, Newark. Uh, during the Clinton administration, she worked on the Domestic Policy Council at the White House, and later led Senator uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton's health legislative staff. Uh, between 2004 and eight, she lived and worked in China. She works on health policy as well as human rights and comparative law. Huge welcome to the pod, Christina.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, and, you know, hello, Nick and Frank. And I am delighted to have the chance to talk with you guys.
0: Excellent. Well, first of all, uh, some uh, lightning round uh, issues. First, uh, something that was much on folks' minds last week at the Harvard uh, Big Data Conference. Uh, and while I talk about that, uh, uh, many thanks to friends of the show, Glenn Cohen and Holly Fernandez, for uh, a great uh, conference. And uh, hi to the many Twill listeners I met there. So last week, the New Scientist broke a fascinating story about a data sharing agreement between Google's DeepMind, which is uh, uh, one of their AI big data companies, and three London, uh, UK hospitals. Uh, The new scientist uh, used a Freedom of Information request and uh, accessed the agreement, uh, the data sharing agreement, uh, to find that it gave Google access to current and historical data on 1.6 million patients. Now, it appears that this had been publicly announced as a research project to monitor kidney disease. Uh, So the first uh, reaction folks had to the new scientist story was uh, that the data access seemed to go way beyond that particular project, uh, given that they had access to the full clinical record. Now, there are use limitations and data destruction requirements built into the agreement. But as we were talking about it, clearly there are concerns about the effectiveness of those limitations and i guess also the bigger picture of how ai and analytics companies uh, might carve out dominant positions in healthcare i just wish i knew someone who who could talk about such issues frank <laughs>
1: So that is a terrific topic, Nick. And, you know, it brings to mind the scandal that happened, uh, I think, a few years ago with the CARA data, where Britain's um, Health and Social Care Information Center, uh, now rebranded uh, NHS Digital, uh, got in some hot water because it shared a lot of its information with uh, private insurers, others, uh, where there was some real concern about potential misuse and concern about people not really being notified or given a chance, not merely to consent, but even to comment or to shape the uh, way in which the information was distributed so I think that this current initiative sadly raises some of the same concerns you know Google itself is not exactly in the most favored position in the European or even UK uh, regulatory uh, light and you know and I, I just sort of have to worry about a, a bit about this I do I will say however that the proposed application here was a really excellent one um, in terms of the uh, early warning about some of the uh kidney issues that could occur, and perhaps it could be a proving grounds for some real advances in AI improving healthcare. But nevertheless, I, I share those concerns, Nick, and I do hope that there's going to be some real accountability and some real auditability. I remember looking over the uh, agreement between IHS and Google and sort of thinking a bit, you know, how exactly is this going to be enforced? And I still don't think we have good answers for that.
0: Yes, I, I think the uh, there, there is no doubt that uh, big data has this extraordinary potential in the healthcare space. And also no doubt that uh, there are transparency questions. I wonder whether there is a a broader question here Frank going forward in that although let's assume that you know the the data is destroyed at the end of of this particular study or whatever and all the terms are kept but it does suggest that the the analytics themselves the algorithms that are developed from this will remain in the hands, perhaps solely, of these big data companies. I wonder whether that's a good overlay to our healthcare systems.
1: Yes, I think that's a great question. It's certainly been recently addressed uh, in Roger Ford and Nicholson Price's work in terms of what exactly is going to be the, uh, who are going to be the uh, leaders in terms of learning how to analyze this data. And, you know, it's tricky because, I mean, I think that the one of the issues here, and, you know, having followed the Twitter stream, from the uh, Big Data and Health Law Conference at Harvard last week, is that I'm wondering particularly what's going to be the balance of power in terms of the entities that provide data, those that you know, have the algorithms to analyze it, etc. Similar things, by the way, are being raised about Ravel Law at Harvard Law School. Harvard Law just digitized a huge number of cases uh, in coordination with Ravel Law, but it does not seem at all that Ravel Law uh, is going to be sharing those, um, uh, the algorithms it uses to develop predictive analytics uh, software for legal. Disputes, and so I think that you know if we really want to build a uh, learning healthcare system overall, we have to be really conscious of ensuring that the tools of innovation that there can be sequential innovation, and they're not just locked up in some large firms that happen to be at the right place at the right time when the gold rush for data access occurred. Yes, indeed, a gold rush. So
0: from a relatively new and unfolding uh, problem about healthcare to one that is really uh, certainly middle-aged by now, and one that we would have anticipated had been fixed or should have been fixed by now. Uh, there's a new study in the British Medical Journal that suggests that the medical error problem was even more dramatically underestimated by the To Er to Her Is Human report back in, what, 1999, wasn't it? And that the rate today is well over 250,000 deaths per year. Um, And the headline-making piece here, of course, is that that makes medical error the third most common cause of death in the U.S. after heart disease and cancer. The article uh, in the BMJ uh, recommends that death certificates contain an extra field to record preventable complications leading to death and also uh, suggests making ICD-10 codes more transparent with regard to error. Uh, coincidentally, or coincidentally I assume, uh, there was a JAMA viewpoint published last week entitled Patient Safety at the Crossroads – which reported on a National Patient uh, Safety Foundation workshop. And uh, in short, while stakeholders agreed there'd been progress since to a uh, uh, safety culture as envisioned by the IOM systems approach still seems to elude our healthcare system. The authors noted the current state is more characterized by confusing complexity. Safety initiatives focused on a broad array of specific safety targets with interventions for each one. Process standardization, checklists, for surgery, bundles for central lines, electronic prescribing, an order re-entry and medication barcoding. So it seems to be a sort of a suggestion from that piece that we're still dealing with trees and, and the wood. Um, that focusing in on these details has sort of impeded changes in the overall culture. Um, and there surely is some irony there, given the uh, the overarching problem of fragmentation and, and lack of uh, coordination. The JAMA uh, viewpoint concluded, To accelerate progress in patient safety, healthcare leaders, researchers and legislators need to see patient safety as what it really is, a serious public health concern that costs lives and causes harm to untold numbers of people every year in every kind of health setting and they need to see it as a local problem not somebody else's talking about culture is not enough leaders need to identify strategies to effective, effectively create a safety culture and apply them broadly and systematically throughout the healthcare system frank i i i, I don't know why we haven't solved this yet
1: yes and i want to raise uh, two concerns here and one being that i think that there's really interesting uh, learning that's going to occur over the next decade decades Uh, regarding the aviation analogy and healthcare. You know, we often get this uh, work by Lucian Leap and others saying that we need to learn from automation and sort of to automate to avoid really bad outcomes, and that slowly but surely is being rolled out things like clinical decision support systems and other things, um, ideally as sort of guardrails uh, for uh, to avoid mistakes. But I also wanted to raise one skeptical note about the study. Admittedly, I have not read the full text, but one thing I just worried a little bit about, and I'm going to bring together both classic tort law concerns and public health here. Um, I'm on a bit of a high wire, Nick. I hope that you'll catch me if I fall off it. But it's that you know, a lot of times when I think about the people who, when the concept of dying of a medical error how proximate was the cause in these scenarios? The other thing that I would love to see is an overall analysis of, say, someone comes to the hospital, they've been smoking two packs a day for 30 years, and then someone trips over the cord in the ICU and the ventilator is turned off. Um, this was actually an example given on the on a show by one of the authors, I believe. You know, and, and of course, that was the proximate cause. But on the other hand, in terms of how do we think about the burden of death and attributing responsibility for death overall, you know, going, Back to H.L.A. Hart's and Tony Anore's work in causation and law, and causation and the remoteness of damage. I do wonder a bit, you know, about uh, how, what would an overall vision of U.S. mortality uh, look like, and how that would be allocated. Um, and of course, that leads into the public health concerns that lots of our other guests have said that it's really the the larger environment, not the healthcare system per se, that is the main driver of uh, you know, the variation in lifespans. But nevertheless, completely agreed with you, Nick, and completely agreed with the study authors that huge amount more attention and uh, resources need to be put into avoiding uh, clearly preventable uh, terrible outcomes well as i as
0: i stare up at you as you wobble on that wire um i (laughs) i clearly we are in a, a place here of comorbidities um and that most of these or a large number of these errors are sort of what they call preventable complications. And and, uh, to unravel this at any kind of sane uh, causal uh, level, I think is almost impossible. But I think uh, that's not what we need to be doing. We need to be looking at the system. And that's what we've been told for the last 50 years, I guess. But um, we don't seem to uh, be really doubling down on that culture of safety. Just like We've learned that cost savings and uh, healthcare reform and the way payments change and so on—that also seems to be a matter of local cultures in healthcare institutions. Those cultures start at the top, and and one of the things the uh, the report talks about is far more education for the members of boards of healthcare institutions and so on. But uh, clearly, an issue that's going to be li- with us, unfortunately, for some some extended period of time.
1: Yes, indeed, and I do love the idea of the uh, education for board members and disseminating best practices. Absolutely.
0: Well, Christina, uh, welcome once again, and uh, let's uh, let's talk about uh, some of your uh, really interesting. Uh, research areas, um, and uh, I'd mentioned in the intro that you spent uh, a fair amount of time. Um, I think it was uh, under the auspices of the Clinton Foundation uh, in China, uh, looking at healthcare and healthcare law, and uh, uh, it's a system I know nothing about. I, I do. Uh, I, I did read that. I guess while. Well, uh, well, we have the triple aim, uh, Don Berwick and, and colleagues' triple aim. That uh, the healthcare reform structure in China is referred to as "quote one goal, four beams, and eight columns," uh, which <laughs> seems to be uh, uh, inflationary. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how uh, Chinese healthcare uh, operates, and indeed sure. the, the, the changes and the reforms, and and then sort of start talking maybe a little bit about. Uh, how the legal system uh, operates uh, with regard to that phenomenon.
2: Sure, sure, um, uh, and of course I'm radically oversimplifying here, but let me give you a sense of um, you know where China is mid arc. Um, so uh, in 1949, um, with the communist revolution. Um, one of the real sort of, um, selling points, I think, of, uh, of Mao's regime was that he had promised that he would provide better health care and bring more health care to the people. So he actually sort of famously deployed, um, this cadre of, um, of barefoot doctors um, all around the country. Uh, and um, in the urban areas, there were, uh, again, sort of very low-level community health workers. Um, and these are folks who are given sort of a small amount of training, you know, maybe a couple months' worth of training. And they um, were uh, either – their salaries were guaranteed by the government or they were paid for out of agricultural communes. Um, and they delivered essentially free service – Um, to sort of the mass of, um, the Chinese populace at the time. And, um, you know, it's very simple sorts of interventions, like obviously vaccinations, sanitation, um, You know, uh, very simple medications. And they, in 30 years, slashed infant mortality from 250 per thousand to 40 per thousand, um, doubled life expectancy, um, you know, eradicated certain endemic diseases, uh, and it was, you know, a sort of huge success story that was widely touted by the WHO. Then China sort of took a pivot, right? And the, um, end of the seventies, sort of the beginning of the eighties, Deng Xiaoping, um, led the country toward sort of greater market liberalism. Um, and that market liberalization um, basically sort of entailed, um, among other things, taking a lot of state-owned, state-owned enterprises and making them responsible for their own financial solvency, right? So sort of ending the um, the kind of central financial backstop um, to their, uh, their survival. And so health entities were treated the same way. So um, clinics and hospitals essentially then had to be financially solvent. The central government withdrew a lot of its subsidies. And so suddenly you found these, quote unquote, public hospitals and public clinics behaving in a kind of, you know, very recognizable market-oriented fashion. Um, All the usual results, right? Um, So there was massive amounts of supplier-induced demand, um, spiraling costs, uh you know uh, even as government expenditure dropped to you know 15% of the healthcare dollar um out of pocket costs uh tripled to 60% of the healthcare dollar um or in in China's case the healthcare yuan right uh and you know you had um at the same time right folks who had been used to receiving essentially free or low cost service at the point of care um, suddenly unable to afford um, medical expenses. Um, there was uh, sort of very little insurance in the in the rural um, areas and urban insurance um, actually sort of dipped to um, roughly 50%. So, you know, you had um, a great deal of, of dissatisfaction, okay? And this kind of built and built, um, you know, throughout the sort of 80s, 90s. And around the early aughts, um, the government uh, really decided to think carefully about sort of whether this was the path that it wanted to continue on. I think there are a number of um, kind of instigators or triggers for the government to take a new direction. Um, one of them was the SARS crisis in 2003, and there um, was certainly a kind of loss of public face on the international stage for the Chinese government um, in terms of the, their ability to, um, in the kind of contemporary world, handle um, major sort of healthcare challenges. Um and so, uh, in the early aughts, China then began to um, come up with a series of reforms that were kind of formalized in in March of 2009. So there's a reversal of this kind of de- disinvestment from the um, healthcare system, and once again, they began to um, sort of stream more central f- centralized funding into um, into these hosp- this sort of network of hospitals and clinics that's sort of fairly you know well developed across China. Um, but, you know, what was sort of interesting about it is that they, um, you know, streamed a lot of money into the system through demand-side coverage, right? So they, um, you know, sort of stood up these um, new rural cooperative medical system uh, uh, funds and then uh, what they called urban resident basic medical insurance funds and urban employee basic medical insurance. Funds. These are just various kind of um, pooling mechanisms where, you know, sort of people pay in a little bit in terms of premium. Um, and then the central government, and the local government match. And these pooled funds are used to cover um, people's health care costs. Um, you know, but what about the fact that this underlying kind of financial incentive right to um, over prescribe right um, sell sell in particular sell sort of higher end higher technology um, uh, tests, uh, diagnostic tests and and medicines, right over order and over prescribe this was happening because there were at the s- same time price controls that were sort of being um imposed upon what were perceived to be essential or basic services in the healthcare system right so these kind of quote unquote more um kind of uh modern discretionary unnecessary uh, not particularly sort of core or central services um were ones that were that were f- freer you know somewhat free from price controls and the um doctors were allowed to charge a markup of fifty percent on um, those higher price items so you saw massive overprescription, right um you know, I think there's sort of – I read somewhere recently that, um, you know, a survey showed that like something like 69% of antibiotic prescriptions are um, unnecessary or not medically justified, right? So, so I mean, it's sort of people – the and people are acculturated to this, right? Patients, they they show up at the hospital and if they don't get medicine in an IV drip, right, they feel like they've been ripped off, that the um, hospital is simply not giving them quality care. So, so what China has begun is this process of trying to, you know, establish maybe sort of a more of a purchaser and um, provider distinction where, where these pooled funds, um, will, uh, you know, sort of purchase services, um, from these still in name public providers, public hospitals and public clinics. Um, but the problem is, right? Nothing has been really done to um, control the financial incentives, right? So the providers can still overprescribe, right? Um, they are still not getting enough money, right? To um, to sort of replace any money that they might have otherwise gotten from um, from uh, ordering drugs and tests. And so they just now have a deeper pocket to draw from. They have you know uh, a sort of centrally subsidized pocket um, to draw from. So that's kind of where where we are right now. And there have been a number of kind of pilots that are um, s- you know seeing if there 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 can be any
1: headway made um, uh, on this uh, you know in the face of this situation. Uh, so, Christina, I was just wondering, before we get into the um, the pilots, just to recap for the audience, because I think you gave a lot of details and I wanted to sort of just schematize them. Yeah. It, it, the early approach that sort of even stemmed back from the Mao era was sort of an approach of having the barefoot doctors, as they were so-called, um, which was seen as a, a big win uh, from a public health perspective. Um, but then as the economic liberalization happened, there was an idea that, oh, well, we could have more of a professionalized or a, a higher uh, value marketized healthcare system. But the problem was that just as we've seen in, say, profit-driven healthcare in the U.S., that there was an excessive uh, emphasis on, say, expensive drugs or treatments that didn't necessarily work under what was a de facto sort of fee-for-service model in China. What I was wondering is a couple of questions. One is, and please take any or all of these, if because uh, I think any of them might be illuminating in terms of setting the stage for future reform. One being, um, what is the overall GDP percentage in China spent on healthcare? I mean, I know that in the U.S., the usual knockdown argument that we have an inefficient system is the point that people point to the fact that there are 18 percent of GDP is going to healthcare versus nine percent in Britain, twelve percent right, in France, right. etc. And then the second question I, I would have is, I do realize that from our perspective, overutilization does seem to be a concern, or at least from the U.S. technocratic uh, healthcare perspective, over utilization is the prime concern. Would you say that overall, though, um, that China was a problem of too much health care being given out or too little? Or did it embody in Entoven's terms, the paradox of excess and deprivation? <laughs> There's both too <laughs> much and too little.
2: Of co- right. Of course, it, it embodies the paradox of excess and deprivation. But let me give um, you know a few kind of um, Numbers to help us anchor sort of our thinking about this. So, you know, the um, the percent of GDP uh, spent on healthcare in China is kind of in the five ish, five to six percent range. Um, so it's not that huge, okay? Um, I have to, you know, that's sort of the last time I've looked at it. But um, in the US, obviously, we spend something like uh, seven, 17 uh, percent, right? But in China, one other number that was always striking to me is. Fifty um, percent of total healthcare expenditures um, go to uh, drugs. So, right in the U.S., that's something that's wow. more like ten. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's big. Um, OECD drugs uh, in the OECD generally is like set, you know seventeen percent, right? So, so compared to fifty percent, right? So we're talking about misallocation here, right? Um, and it's particularly striking given kind of the history um, that that shows that sort of low cost, um, sort of basic interventions can achieve, you know, pretty. Terrific results um, in China. So, um, the sort of other thing that I always think is kind of um, undervalued, right, um, is really kind of sort of healthcare worker time, skill. Uh, Even something I would call prestige, right? So, so in China, I think um, doctors get paid roughly what the average wage is. I think the 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 sort of um, salary ratio for doctors to the average um, salary is something like one point oh nine. Again, OECD countries, we're talking about something like one point five to seven point five. And this is, you know, the this is sort of manifested in so many different ways. So, um, one is, you know, there's even more incentive, right, for doctors to of feel like they want to earn, you know, great income, right? And sort of um, you know, try to take advantage of various sort of, you know, whether they be kickbacks or informal payments. Um, or in China often the patients will pay red envelopes um to doctors. It's sort of customary to give your doctor a, a red envelope that will contain cash in it. Um and, you know, in a sense it's sort of um you know, to th- thank the doctor for taking special care of you, right? Um, but I think that that's just sort of this sort of strange indicator of how we actually do feel like the healers in our society, right, need to be sort of – they need to be powerful. They need to be given social prestige, right? We regard them as such. And there's a particular social function that they perform um, that sort of depends on that level of honor and that, that level of prestige. And um, that's just something that has been stripped from the um, – s- the Chinese system. So you have um, the, a public that's extremely dissatisfied with the care that they receive in the healthcare system, right? So the Chinese, um, uh, they have sort of a whole, they have like a term, right? And a whole category of, 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 of administrative responses to medical violence, right? And it's so prominent that, um, you know, people in China aren't worried about having medical malpractice insurance. What they are worried about is that they're going to get stabbed in the, um, you know, operating room by unhappy patients, right? So, so in fact, wow. many, um, hospitals have re- required their um, healthcare personnel, or distributed for the healthcare personnel, um, Kevlar vests to wear under their white coats. Um, and, you know, it's just very sort of customary for people who are upset about a particular medical outcome. They will bring the corpse of the body to the front steps of the hospital, and they will not leave until they get a payout, right? So there's a sort of level of kind of social protest and medical violence um, and um, widespread dissatisfaction uh, with um, with healthcare that bleeds over into widespread dissatisfaction with the Chinese government. And that's what I think um, underlies a lot of the kind of response that you see um, in terms of health policy.
0: That's that's an extraordinary story. Thank you for that. Just one thing to just sort of clear up for me. Um you mentioned in, in a couple of the pieces that we'll be um linking to in the show notes that China now has a sort of a hybrid model of of healthcare. And I wanted to zero in particularly on the financing piece of this. Um, I'm correct, am I, when I say that now that the hybrid is partly um, block grants from central government combined with private insurance, and if that is vaguely accurate... Does China appear to be adopting or moving towards sort of one of the known models? You know, beverage or Bismarck or national health insurance, or Lord forbid uh, the U.S. system. Uh, where so? Where's the where's the money here? Follow yeah. the money for me.
2: So that's a great question. So the additional funds that were um, sort of reinvested into the healthcare system with this. Um, Kind of you know roughly sort of 2008 through 2011 health reform right that was mostly streamed to the supply side so through these kind of um you know pooling schemes these sort of insurance coverage schemes that i've um, been describing you know they're different ones for the urban employees right that's the urban uh, employee B- uh, bmi and then for um, unemployed um, urban residents and then for um, rural residents uh, who aren't formally employed, but you know, obviously sort of work in agriculture. Um, so the, you know, there is, you know, and it's sort of hard to say where things will head in the future, but you definitely see this sort of trend. Um, away from kind of a pure public integrated health delivery and health financing model. Um, and I think the political fortunes of sort of various components of the um, Chinese government have risen and f- fallen with those particular kinds of policy choices, right? So the Ministry of Health, which was r- responsible for um, all the hospitals, right, they they saw their star fall significantly because the money is no longer sort of streamed through the, you know, supply side through them to um, subsidize the costs of, you know, providing healthcare care, um, but it's really sort of on the purchaser side. You know, but, you know, there's this um, sort of interesting article that, um, you know, uh, you know, Bill Shaw and Winnie Yip have done, and they basically talk about, and I think you see this happen in all, you know, political systems, but they talk about kind of this oscillation, right? Um, as the political winds shift, you have some people who are, you know, going to push the system more towards a kind of public model, and then some people who are going to push the system more towards... And, um, you know, I, let's be clear, the the sort of, you know, healthcare delivery system is still, you know, 80%, predom- predominantly public in nature in China, right? But more toward a sort of market-oriented, um, sort of this kind of, you know, payer-provider sort of purchasing dynamic, right? So you've kind of seen that oscillation over time. Right now, um, China is, is probably closer to the market end of the spectrum. It's moving in that direction. And then one of the, I think, misguided um, sort of, Efforts to push it even further in that direction is that China has been inviting um, a lot of private investment into the um, into the healthcare system. So basically, they're they're encouraging um, you know foreign investment into private hospitals. Um, they're encouraging uh, you know uh, there there's definitely a kind of feeding frenzy in the um, kind of device and um, pharmaceutical. Uh, arenas, um, I think McKinsey has sort of, you know, made this sort of, you know, wildly overblown pronouncement that, you know, in the next sort of, you know, by 2020, the the Chinese healthcare sector is going to have grown from something like $400 billion to a over $1 trillion sector, right? So you see all this money flooding in, and not in a way that's particularly thoughtful, right? So there's just, why would a private hospital who also needs to, you know, generate revenue for its own financial financial solvency sort of operate in a way that's sort of, you know, more salutary than a public hospital that is, you know, basically also trying to earn its own bread, right? Both of them are going to over, you know, over um, utilize um, and they aren't necessarily, they're going to get kickbacks from various pharmaceutical companies and device um, companies. So they're probably going to um, sort of steer kind of their overutilization towards these, um, again, sort of, you know, less healthy, right, um, types of um, items in the healthcare sector.
1: I will say, uh, Christina, that just the – I'm so glad that uh, we're talking about uh, China today because I think most of our conversations um, have been very U.S.-focused, and it is – I just see this whole vista uh, opening up, uh, listening to your insights and uh, your work in the area and thinking further about you know what would an optimal healthcare system like look like it also reminds me a bit of um i think it was in tr reed's book about uh comparing healthcare systems around the world looking at taiwan and i think they taiwan had to develop a system and they basically one of the things they said was well, the one thing we just want to avoid is the american system and, <laughs>
2: and <laughs> it's true. Um, So, right, so there's this ongoing kind of learning conversation, right, um, that's happening globally. And uh, different countries look at the experiences of other countries. And, you know, I think, um, I think in the US, we do too, perhaps it's not as sort of um, valued or, uh, you know, certainly within the legal discourse, um, you know, in recent years, there's sort of um, there, there's been sort of a little bit of a discouraging tone to, to, to sort of looking at other countries, other jurisdictions, other systems. Um, but one of the things that I've been doing recently is, uh, you know, Kim Matrison and I have been teaching this um, South African constitutional law course. Both of us um, being healthcare lawyers, we um, teach it as a health and human rights class. And again, South Africa is a country where you, where there's this tr- transition, right? Economic transition, um, and health sector transition sort of away from kind of a public, again, a public integrated delivery and financing system and healthcare, um, to, uh, you know, this, whatever the next phase is. And they're ju- sort of debating that now. Um, and again, a country that has to sort of cope with the, um, dynamics of stratification that arise from, you know, rapid economic development. Um, and, Right, to just to see different countries try to grapple with those things and see where um, both confront sort of similar problems and um, you know where they where they hopefully can try to, to uh, learn from from each other's mistakes I, I just think that that's um, that's it's been fascinating for me I think it's um, hopefully something that yields sort of good results for us in a practical way as we make decisions going forward in our own system
0: how do you discount uh, in your work in your comparative work for sort of the peculiarity Uh, The historical... Uh, issues that these different countries cultures have so for example um, you know you in china you talked about the the post mao uh, period and then the movement to markets and so on in South Africa presumably uh, it's dominated by a public health picture the um, the inequities of the apartheid period uh, followed by uh, horrifying questions about child welfare and now the costs of antiretroviral treatments so on. Uh, so, generalization must be very difficult.
2: I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, one of the things that um, I've been puzzling over um, in my own work is the degree to which sort of cultural and socio historical factors affect the role of the legal system in these um, uh, health decisions, high stakes health decisions. And in, in South Africa, right, you have kind of this really prominent tradition of, um, of, of, you know, post-apartheid of sort of thinking about human rights as the source of, um, the values, uh, that are to be applied in decision-making, including in healthcare decision-making. And there's a kind of strong sort of judicial infrastructure and sort of a sense of judicial independence. And there's sort of a, um, widespread public culture of bringing disputes To the judicial system, right? And there's a certain pride that people take in that, in their their own kind of, um, I guess sort of awareness of their own rights. And so that is going to sort of play out quite differently when you think about sort of how health rights, right, and health values are um, pursued in South Africa versus in China where, you know, the judiciary is not independent um, and in fact it's very much beholden often to sort of local governments who um, fund the judiciary. And um, and there isn't sort of this culture of rights. Um, so, so, right, I, I just think that thinking about those kinds of questions has been incredibly interesting, illuminating, granular. I, I also think though that in some sense, right, there's this sort of opposite dynamic, which once you sort of begin to look at some other, um, systems and their problems and you begin to see certain commonalities, it's incredibly clarifying. So you can kind of separate the signal from the noise, right? Because, in the US, right, there are obviously sort of multiple reasons why, you know, certain things may come out the way they do, Multi- multiple reasons why we might experience certain um, sort of broad population health outcomes and so forth. Um, but when you see that dynamic, right, recur in another context, then sort of the, the causation and those causal chains um, are in some ways sort of quite uh, made, made quite clear. So, I mean, I think it's been... It's been, uh, you know, really great. The one thing that I would sort of say, and I, again, right, you know, all these things sort of as you as you go forward in your scholarly career, you, you continue to struggle with. I think that in China... Um I, you know, would not have done this work had I not sort of been living in, working in, and immersed in the healthcare system in China, right? So, you know, we were um, helping the Chinese government to roll out um, antiretroviral treatment uh, for the, you know, from, from the bottom up, right? So from, from the very inception of their ability to offer um, antiretroviral treatment um, in China. And so there was kind of a, a sort of feel for for um, the system that I was able to develop, so i have I'm of two minds going forward about sort of how I continue this work. right? I think that to um you know remain true to um the system and not sort of impose your for you know your foreign sort of preconceptions on it, um you, you have to be there, right? You have to keep yourself honest. Uh, and then I think that, um, you know, I think you, you and I talked a little bit about this, Nick, but I also sort of think that it's been difficult for me to figure out how to navigate working in China, given a variety of political constraints, um, given that I'm a, you know, foreigner and, and sort of given that, um, you know, there is a sort of a certain amount of care that you need to take, given the, um, hostility towards sort of civil society and, um, you know, sort of foreign support of civil society in China. And you know, I I feel like that's something that I feel like I can navigate when I can see very tangible results at the end of the day. When I was working in China um, on HIV treatment, right, it, the 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 benefits right to the Chinese people are tangible. So it was very easy for me to figure out. Well, what kind? How do I weigh sort of all the factors, right? Do I do I do this now, which might engender hostility with my local partners, um, as opposed to sort of waiting and framing this issue in a different way that might be you know that might, might um, improve its receptivity. Um, I find it very difficult to do when when my ultimate objective is really just scholarly, because I think that the benefits to um, the people at the end of the day are attenuated. Um, It's not that they're not there, but they're attenuated. And so, so, you know, I think that that's, again, something I struggle with, um, as I think about comparative
0: scholarship. Well, that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Ho. Great fun having you with us, Christina. And thanks for making us think about these far larger issues. Uh, We need to return to them here on Twill, I think.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast.
0: We post our show notes at Twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.